this on? It is. Well, that's great. Thank you, Brian, for the two kind words. Um, if, I had, if I had been more up on my hymns before I started tonight, I would have picked trust and obey maybe as the uh, thematic way that we might approach this. But please turn with me to Mark 8. We're going to be in Mark 8 tonight. And I think as we wrap this up over the next four or five hours, um, since the clock's not working, we'll, uh, we'll finish before daylight, I think. How about that? Um, but as we wrap this up, I think you could actually go back and, and look at the words of that song and sort of be inspired by that and, and, and where this ties in. But where I went instead was, and in looking out at the age of the crowd, I think much like me, you probably grew up in a time when kids had to play with each other using their imaginations, using words instead of emojis to communicate. And one of the games we played was follow the leader. And actually, teachers still use follow the leader today, but they use it for educational purposes. And in follow the leader, as the name would suggest, usually all the kids line up in a line, and they pick the person in the front of the line who's going to be the leader. And the, the goal of the game is that you have to mimic everything that that leader does as they meander about a room. And if you miss something that they do, you get kicked out of line. So then you've got to sit and watch until the last person is in the line and they win. So one of the educators that, that encourages doing this says that the importance of playing follow the leader is because it sharpens a child's ability to hear your voice and to listen to your instructions and to obey your requests. So I want to think about 1 John 2, 5, and 6, and then we'll, we'll pray. Where we're told, by this we may know that we're in him, that we're in Jesus. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. Right? So as Christians, we are called to play follow the leader, but we're called to play follow the leader on a very grand scale. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege and the honor to gather together tonight to study your word. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit works to open our eyes and our ears to give us the ability to see and to, to hear your voice coming through your word, guiding us in how to follow and honor your Son we pray that you would be glorified through our worship tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage tonight, oh, sorry, we're going to be in Mark 8.31 is where we're going to start, 8.31. So we're, we're really hitting here a turning point in the gospel of Mark. After Mark leads us off in chapter 1 by stating that, that Jesus is the Son of God, it, we go all the way up to the part where we're in tonight where where we see him identified as the Christ, as the Messiah. So Jesus, going back into to verse 29, he's, he's had this conversation with his disciples, and he's asked them, who does the world think that I am? And they give their answers. And then he asks in, in verse 29, but who do you say that I am? And anyone who's ever sat through a class or a talk and, and the teacher asks what is kind of a, a question that has an obvious answer 
it goes kind of silent, right? You, everybody knows how that feels. You squirm around in your seat a little bit until someone sort of speaks up and breaks this agonizing silence. And, and we see whether that's actually what happened. That's kind of how I envision this as the 12 are sitting there and Jesus asks them, who, are, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter breaks this silence and says, uh, you are the Christ. And we see in Matthew's account, Jesus' response to that is, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So the question is, does suddenly identifying Jesus as the Christ, the long-awaited-for Messiah, the Son of God, does that actually mean that the disciples know what that means? Do they actually understand what it means? Not really. Right? The identification is correct, but Jesus is going to take that correct identification and he's going to open up their eyes to what it really means, what scriptures have been pointing to all along. The suffering Messiah, the Messiah who's going to come and suffer and bear our sins in the perfect sacrifice. But once Peter confesses that he's the Christ, just like when we confess Jesus is Lord, you've committed yourself. Right? He's just said, we identify you as the long-awaited-for Messiah. So what follows as we dig into this is going to come as a huge shock for anybody who is gathered around as a disciple of this now-identified Messiah. And it's important for us, too, because if we're going to declare Jesus as Lord, if we are going to repent and believe and acknowledge his rule over everything as the eternal Son of God, who's now become our prophet, priest, and king, sitting at the right hand of God and interceding for us, if we're going to declare all of that, then we kind of need to know, what does that mean to be a disciple of Jesus? So on the heels of this important declaration that Peter makes... Jesus begins in, in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now this is interesting to see Jesus speaking plainly here. He's speaking clearly, he's speaking boldly about the messianic mission, right? He, he is talking about his purpose. He's not speaking in parables anymore. This is, this is unique. But while it's clear and it's plain, it doesn't really meet with anyone's expectations. It had to have resulted in complete bewilderment and confusion among the disciples who are standing there. It doesn't match up with the role or the function or the authority of the Messiah that they were expecting. And it has huge implications for understanding discipleship. And what does it mean, after all, to have left everything to be a follower, a disciple, an apprentice of sorts, who's now following somebody who's telling you that they must suffer, that they must die? That's not what they were expecting. And so, breaking it down, we have to, to start by looking at how Jesus lives, 
leads into this, right? He's not just giving us a prophecy of, of what will happen. That, that's for sure when we, we know the rest of the story and we can look backwards. But he's actually telling them what must happen. Right? It's not optional. So the only way to fulfill his messianic mission is to suffer and be rejected and be killed. And after three days, he'll be raised again. It must happen. Right? He's laying this out for them. But here they sit, having left everything to follow somebody with completely different expectations. So he has, he has taken and redefined the expectations of Messiah beyond anything that they could recognize. Because what were they expecting? They're expecting that, that Messiah is coming to establish an everlasting kingdom. He's supposed to show up and exude this messianic authority. He's supposed to exercise royal dominion. He's going to purify the temple and the worship there. And really important to this crowd, he's going to expel the Gentiles out of their midst as he creates this holy people, right? But that's not what he's now telling them that he's going to do. Here he is speaking plainly about his rejection, suffering, and death. And he adds this little twist, this little irony. We would expect this suffering and death, if it were going to come at all, to come from wicked, godless people. And we might look at the leaders of the time, again, knowing the full story, and say they're wicked and godless. But what Jesus is pointing out to them is this is going to be the very deliberate decision of your religious leaders that are going to reject me. And he adds that he's going to be resurrected. And I'd question whether they really understand this at the time, in this very moment. I mean, they've just been shocked, really, as their world kind of gets tipped upside down with who the Christ really is and what he's going to be doing. And they don't have a great frame of reference for thinking about the resurrection like we do. They believe in a resurrection but not necessarily in the way Jesus is talking about. So I'm sure they had to have been pretty lost at this stage. Jesus has, has told them, I'm not coming in here to, to, to win the, everything the way you think it's going to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. And Peter does really take leadership here and do probably what the rest of them must have been thinking. He pulls Jesus aside. And he, he begins to rebuke him. He brings you to strongly correct him. It shows one thing. Jesus really did speak plainly. There's no misunderstanding here. Right? There's no confusion about what he said. It's not a parable. But Peter is in this weird place. He's just confessed that Jesus is the Christ. And now he has to pull him aside and say, I know you're the Christ, but I need to correct your mistaken way of thinking about what the Christ's role is. Matthew 16 actually gives us more of Peter's words. It says, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So Peter proclaims that he's the Christ and now says, I know more about the will of God for the Christ than the Christ himself. It's really a unique position to take. But Peter's reaction also shows us just how radically new this concept would be, that we have a Messiah who is going to suffer. It's just not compatible with the way that the Jews were thinking at the time. And while we read that knowing that, 
we read that through the lens of a completed canon, right? A completed New Testament. And it seems almost absurd to us to see Peter react in this way. But if we really put ourselves in Peter's shoes, if we're standing around at that time, we have to think how we approach these things with human reasoning. That is the way we think. So we're thinking a Messiah is coming, and he's going to establish his kingdom on earth, God's kingdom. Now, what person is going to design a method of saving the world that's going to include despair, torture, suffering, and death of the Savior? Nobody. We really don't even make movies like that. We might have a little bit of the suffering hero who comes back, but, but we don't create anybody that does that. But that reasoning and objection that, that Peter has given is not left to stand for very long because Jesus then says in verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You talk about being knocked off your pedestal really, really hard. We, we read those words in, in Matthew that happened right before this. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You're, you're hearing this from God. And now, a little bit later, Jesus gives him a rebuke that's as strong or stronger than he gives to the Pharisees who he's arguing with oftentimes. So, this is, this is a tough one for Peter to take. Get behind me, Satan. Go back to your place as a follower. Do not be approaching me and trying to tell what the master should be doing. But what's going on here? Why the strong reaction to this? We need to think back to the temptations in the wilderness that Jesus faced. Right? In Matthew 4, verse 8, it starts off, Again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. Peter has unwittingly become the carrier of demonic doctrine here, really. Right? It's the same temptation that he's looking at, that he's sort of laying out. Why not simply abandon the will of God? Why not abandon this odd plan that you've laid out that's the triune God's plan of redemption from all eternity? Why not come and rule? Fit the natural expectation that people would, would expect. Skip the hard spot. But rejecting God's plan, no matter how difficult and and challenging, it might seem to us, and seeking a less painful way, Jesus says this, this is not putting your sight or your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus actually doesn't spend an inkling of time or even give the slightest hint that he feels compelled to justify or explain the ways of God to Peter or the disciples about this. Just the fact that Peter, and, and probably representing the disciples when he says it, can't seem to accept a suffering Savior, that alone uh, shows their refusal of God's will, the God who's sovereign, right? the God whose solution to the problem of sin and rebellion 
just doesn't conform to the niceties of human expectations. So Peter is 100% right in one minute in identifying Jesus as the Messiah, and he's 100% wrong the next minute. Not realizing what he's trying to do, he's trying to deflect Jesus from the cross, which would result in the damnation of not only Peter, but all of us. Because it's only through that perfect life of Jesus who then suffers and goes to the cross, bearing our sins, who will die and then be resurrected, that God's wrath against sin is satisfied for us. And Peter doesn't realize this, of course, as he's putting this forward, but that gives us a better sense of this strength of this reaction. Get your mind on the things of God. And so Jesus strongly points this out to Peter, right? And he does it after turning to his disciples so that everybody can witness this. This is not a private rebuke. This is a very public rebuke. And then he shifts. And in verse 24, or 34, he calls the crowd together with the disciples. Sorry. Um, With the disciples, and he explains what it means to be a Christian. And if you're looking at verse 34, um, you should see that's not quite right. It doesn't actually use the word Christian. Now, Merriam-Webster defines Christian with an either-or. It's either one who professes belief in the teachings of Christ. Pretty easy to do. Or Christian can mean disciple. Well, that's tougher. uh, the, The first one's much easier. A lot of people can profess belief in the teachings of Christ. Much tougher to be a disciple, follower, somebody who's trying to be like the master. Jesus doesn't really give us an either-or option is the problem, and that's what we're going to see. So I want to be careful when we think about Christian. It's a little bit of a sidebar here because it gets defined differently based on people's agendas almost every day if you track the news media. So we want to be very careful about that. The word Christian is used a whopping three times in the New Testament. The first time it's used in Acts 11.26 says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. The word order there is important. To be a believer, to be a follower of Christ, means you're a disciple. If you're a disciple, you're a Christian. Now, we often hear of people becoming Christians, and then we hope that someday we'll make them disciples. Some of them will, and some won't, and we might even run programs in different churches to make disciples, and there's nothing wrong with these efforts to make disciples. We should. But we shouldn't confuse the matter and think that there's two classes of people out there. There's Christians and disciples. That's actually just not what we're told. We're not even called to go out and make Christians but not disciples. The, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, tells us to go out and make disciples of all nations. Not to make them something else, a, a believer in some other way, 
and then someday teach them, because it goes on to verse 20 and says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, all that Jesus has commanded. These are part and parcel to the same thing. We don't want to separate these concepts as we think about the church and as we think about evangelism and as we think about reaching the lost. We, We just don't want to do that. So Jesus is just about ready to lay out for us what it means to be a disciple. And in a sense, this is the greatest invite to play follow the leader that we'll ever get. So picking up in in verse 34, he says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So, what's Jesus laying out here? If anyone would come after me, or in the CSB it says, if anybody would follow me, kind of language that we understand, then here's what that looks like. And the world doesn't really like that. Because, to ask, who gets to define what it means to be a Christian? There's so many competing definitions of that floating around out there, and most of the ones that gain traction are the definitions that kind of fit our preconceived notions of our attitudes and our behaviors and how those could be okay. But as if to stop any claim that what he says here is only directed to the 12, only directed to those really close followers, he calls the crowd to him To make this statement, he's making it clear that the conditions for discipleship apply to everybody. And wouldn't we be all ears if we were there? If you're there and you're part of the crowd and you're sitting there and you've witnessed Jesus with the 12 up there, they seem to be having this discussion. You might even overhear a little bit of it. And then there's this little bit of of a raised voice thing going on while Peter gets rebuked. And then all of a sudden Jesus says, hey, everybody, come here. I'm about ready to share with you. And we would for sure jump at that chance. We would want to hear, what does it take to be a follower of Jesus? What does it take to be a disciple? And then he tells us, well, it requires you to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow me. He's not really interested in easy believerism here. He doesn't really call for people to just accept him. And you're good. He's calling for a radical shift in our very center of being. A shift from self to a complete devotion to the will of God. Just in a reckless abandon to that. If we deny self, take up our cross and follow him along the path of sacrificial suffering, whatever that might look like in our life, but we know what it looks like in his... That's what we're to do. We're not being asked by Jesus to be these detached observers of his life and ministry. 
Rather, we'll be told that we have to grow in faith and understanding through participation in his suffering. Jordan Peterson, who some of you may have heard of, he is a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. He is not a Christian. He is open about his rejection of Jesus as Lord and Savior. But I am amazed at how he seems to get this in ways that I haven't seen a lot of Christians lay out before. He was asked in a recent interview whether he believed in God or whether he was a Christian. And he said, I don't like that question. So I sat and thought about it for a good while, and I tried to figure out why. Why don't I like it? And I thought, well, who would have the audacity to claim that they believed in God? If they examined the way that they live, who would dare say that? To believe, to believe in a Christian sense, to have the audacity to claim that, means that you live it out fully. And that's an unbearable task in some sense. I would argue for him, it is an unbearable task. He is choosing a life focused on completely other things. It's not an unbearable task. It's not an unbearable task for any of us in this room. But it is for him. He goes on to say, to be able to accept the structure of existence, the suffering that goes along with it, and the disappointment and the betrayal, and to nonetheless act properly, to aim at the good with all your heart, to dispense with the malevolence and your desire for destruction and revenge and all that, and to face things courageously and to tell the truth, to speak the truth and to act it out, that's what it means to believe. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to state it. It means to act it out. And unless you act it out, you should be very careful about claiming it. Those seem to be words that I would expect to hear from a pulpit, not a psychologist who openly denies that Jesus is Lord. But I've rarely stumbled across somebody who lays it out quite like that and really seems to get exactly what Jesus has just laid out for us here. It's beyond simple head knowledge to make this claim, as Jordan Peterson notes, is to live this claim. You can't make the claim and detach yourself from it. It just doesn't work if you really believe it. Becoming a disciple, it's not some intellectual exercise. It's it's not a spiritual call to believe in a certain set of facts. It's that, but it's more. Certainly, you have to believe in the facts, for starters, but it's a call to surrender our life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do we get in exchange for that is forgiveness. We get freedom. We become a child of God, and we get eternal life. There just simply aren't two classes of believers, Christians and disciples. There are two classes of people. There are those who follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and those who do not. But within Christendom, There's only one way. You're either a disciple of Jesus or you're not a disciple of Jesus. He's not giving us a lot of options here. But what does it mean when he says to take up our cross? We're so accustomed to the symbolism of the cross in our culture. We see it in jewelry. It adorns the necks and the ears and the wrists. 
of all kinds of people, actually even people, if you, if you pay attention to the pictures in the news, people who openly fight against Christianity are wearing cross necklaces, right? It, it just doesn't carry a lot of meaning in our culture. When, and so we may not grasp what Jesus is saying as if we were the first century Jews listening to him speak. Worse, on top of that, it's just a figure of speech for us to bear one's cross. It gets defined this way. I, I love this. It's an idiom, and it gets defined in the American Heritage Dictionary. And this is to take up one's cross or to bear one's cross is a burden or trial one must put up with, as in Alzheimer's is a cross to bear for the whole family. Or in a lighter vein, mowing that huge lawn once a week is Brad's cross to bear. Jesus is not using this phrase to represent some human burden that we're carrying around, some experience of life that's just a little bit tough for us. People carrying crosses to this audience, they were heading for execution. This is dramatic imagery for self-denial, for living only for Christ and no longer for self. It's suffering for Christ that he's talking about when he says, take up your cross and follow me. He's not just talking about that yard's really big to mow. That's a pretty tough cross to bear. Right? That, that doesn't qualify for what he is calling us to. In the first century, the cross is a symbol of extreme repulsion. It's an instrument of cruelty and pain and dehumanization and shame. It represents the hated Roman oppression, particularly in this region. One historian notes that it was the most, it being the cross, was the most visible and omnipresent aspect of Rome's terror apparatus. It was designed especially to punish criminals and quash slave rebellions. When Jesus says, take up your cross, he's not using some Jewish metaphor to mean something different. He is showing that it requires death to self and absolute followership of him. He's using something that for them conjures up an image of a man going to his death on a horrifying death march, carrying the beam across his back that he's going to be nailed to, to die. It's a sobering caution for people. It's counting the cost of discipleship. He is, he is saying, there's no turning back. Follow me. Die to self. Follow me. Now, for many Christians, this imagery, this bearing of the cross, would take a very real sense. And two examples of that would be not long after Mark wrote his gospel, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Nero would persecute the Christians. They would be crucified. They'd often be lit up like candles. They would be tortured. They'd be rounded up. But what kind of encouragement can come from Jesus' words here to take up the cross and follow him? In those moments of extreme suffering, they have the comfort of knowing they're not abandoned by God. That's not what's happening. In fact, they can take some comfort in knowing that they're following the path of their Savior. They're willing to suffer. They're willing to deny self to an extreme in their case. Now, in the West, we're so... We're, we're, we're blessed. We really are. We, persecution, I, I would argue, is starting here. 
It's starting in subtle ways. People are losing some business and that sort of thing. But by and large, we don't experience persecution here in the West like other places do. Our, our idea of persecution is that um, we get unliked on social media. People say really nasty things about us. It hurts our pride. Um, that, that's kind of it. But I'll point out to you that that is not representative of the rest of the world right now. When you think of actual persecution, or, or persecution like I think of it, being thrown in jail, tortured, death, that kind of persecution, 80% of those persecuted around the world are Christian. 80%. And that, that should be a little shocking for you if all you do is watch American or British media. That's probably not what you would expect, but 80%. It recently, it was just earlier this year in May, the British Foreign Secretary noted that persecution is so severe in parts of the Middle East, the parts of the world where the roots of Christianity go the deepest, that Christianity is at risk of disappearing altogether due to, the perse due to persecution that is nearing genocide levels. Now, that's a government report. That is not put together by a church. So, we might find it kind of hard to relate to this bearing the cross or picking up our cross imagery, but I would tell you, one, look at it through the lens of the original audience, and it means a lot. Two, even today, there are those in parts of the world that look at this and, and can take comfort that they are not being abandoned by, by God, but they are lovingly and devotingly following their Savior as far as He's calling them to follow Him. Beginning in verse 35, Jesus makes four statements on kind of supporting this um, discipleship and followership and what it means to deny self and pick up your cross and follow him. Each one of these statements starts with the word for. You can kind of think of that as because. Right? Why take up the, the cross? Why deny yourself? Why follow me? Because. In verse 35, because whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now, life in this use means more than our physical life. It, it means our being. It means our soul, our, the core of our existence. Think of the warning in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can kill both soul and body in hell, right? So Jesus' life is pointing to more than just physical life here. An unwillingness to deny ourselves and take up our cross in an effort to preserve our life and happiness results in exactly the opposite of what he's telling us. The person who tries to live life and maximize it for our own personal comfort right now, the one who jealously and selfishly guards it and hoards worldly treasures, both material and immaterial, can be prideful things, will ultimately lose life itself if that's where your treasure is. It's only by placing our focus on Jesus and following him and deciding that it's more important than anything else that we're looking at in this life that we secure our eternal life. Paul gets this more than others. In Philippians 1.21, he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he could say this because he was willing to follow Jesus at all costs. 
he did that no matter the suffering, the beatings, the stonings, the, the shipwrecks, the imprisonments. I mean, um, I, I, I admire Paul, and I'm so glad that I'm able to stand up here without risk of anything. Well, maybe stoning. I don't, we'll see how, how late I actually go tonight with tomatoes or something. But, um, but it was because of his recognition, like he says in Romans 8, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul had a viewpoint that Jesus is really pointing to here that we need to have. We're not focused on this life. We're focused on what's to come. We're focused on living for Christ. Summarizing this choice that we're graciously offered, I I like what one scholar writes here. He says, discipleship is not mystical or spiritual union with Jesus. When confronted by the call to discipleship, disciples do not have a both-and choice, both Christ and their own lives. They stand before an either-or choice, The claim of Jesus is total and exclusive. It does not allow a convenient compartmentalization of natural life and religious life, of secular and sacred. The whole person stands under Christ's authority. We don't get to to sort of do both. Jesus is warning us here. We need to do these things. The second and third statements can be taken together in verses 36 and 37. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Now, profit, gain, forfeit, give in exchange, these are all commercial terms, not terms of judgment. And that would have appealed to this Galilean crowd, and I would argue it should appeal to us too. We live in a commercial society. Jesus is essentially saying, what I'm offering is a good buy at any price. You buy it. It's it's for sale. But how can we really even compare the trade-off that he's laying out here. On the one side, we could gain the whole world, whatever that means. But on the other side of the ledger is the payment that he requires for that. And that's our very life, our soul. Psalm 49 reads, They trust in their wealth and boast of their abundant riches. Yet these cannot redeem a person or pay his ransom to God, since the price of redeeming him is too costly. We just simply don't have anything to make this trade-off. Our choice is binary. We follow Christ. We follow the world. So these rhetorical questions just highlight, really, the futility of chasing the worldly rewards. If we forfeit eternal life, we experience a total loss. And what we get in return is just not worth it. In John 14, Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Any trade for anything else is a losing proposition for us. But if those reasons that he's already given aren't bad enough to kind of shock us into thinking, maybe I need to take this discipleship request, command seriously, it's this last piece that should make us think real hard about self-defining a version of Christianity that's easier for us. Verse 38, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. 
Now, for the first century Jews, they're, they're going to see this adulterous, sinful generation, and that should hearken them back to Old Testament prophets talking about Israel's spiritual adultery and, and moving away from the covenant and God. And the closing phrase clearly speaks of judgment. It's using language very similar to Second Th- Thessalonians and other places that we'll read about the coming of Christ to judge. But for the original audience and for all of us, The message is very clear. What we do with Jesus today is going to determine our eternal future. Unless we recognize that Jesus as Lord, that Jesus is our Lord through repentance and faith, we're going to face eternal judgment. What we do today is going to impact everything that we do going forward. You can't be ashamed. So I ask, are we ashamed in this culture and I'll, I'll give a, we've got a few minutes left. We'll give a, a quick answer to this, just something that happened a few weeks ago that, that kind of illustrates our, our level of discomfort right, that, that we can face in the world, especially as it comes to money. So New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees made a video. Some of you may have seen this a few weeks ago. He made a video encouraging children and bring your Bible to school day. I wouldn't even call it a big evangelical push. It was kind of just this nice little video. Well, one of the sponsors or the promoters of the video was Focus on the Family. Now, Focus on the Family has been dubbed by society as a hate group. They're a hate group because they hold to the biblical definition of marriage between a man and a woman, a very correct definition of marriage. And secondarily, because they actually hold to the very obvious fact that there are actually only two genders, man and woman, as created by God. They're dubbed a hate group. Drew Brees got obliterated on social media. I mean absolutely hatefully obliterated. But his reaction was extraordinarily painful to watch. So he released a second video a very apologetic second video. And in that video, he explained that he was a Christian. But what he, and that as a Christian, he believed in the two most important commandments, love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and love your neighbor. And he he takes the I love God as a given, and, and the command to love your neighbor represents God's love for everybody and everything. And it's tolerant, and I'm accepting, and I'll accept every behavior, and I'll accept every viewpoint, and so I don't know why anybody's mad. I I didn't mean anything by it. Okay, I I hate to pick on him in a way because we see this all the time. He for sure risked losing some sponsorship going forward and probably some other things. He's also made over $240 million just in his salary over the last 18 years in the NFL. The level of persecution he's facing, I would argue, is very tiny compared to other people. So I'm asking, and we can laugh at that, but I'm asking us to think about ourselves. Are we bold or are we ashamed? I mean, when we read Romans 1.16 and we say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. When we read it, is it words? Or do we believe it? 
Do we live it? Do we have the conviction that that really represents? Jesus is the Christ. He is that long-awaited-for Messiah. He's the eternal Son of God. He came fully as man. He lived a perfect life. He then suffered. He bore our sins on the cross. He faced and took the wrath of a holy God against our sin in our place. And he died. And then he rose again three days later. And he provides through that the forgiveness of our sins should we repent and believe. But we're called to be disciples. And through that is a lot of freedom. But one of the freedoms that Jesus clearly did not give us was the freedom to define or redefine what discipleship means. So is there an easier way? The world would tell us yes. There's an easier way. Some churches may tell you yes. We may actually want there to be an easier way. But God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. And Jesus says in Luke 14, and I, I want to emphasize this when we think, is there another way? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That doesn't sound like there's a lot of wiggle room. I mean, I'm a lawyer and I would have a hard time arguing around the edge of that one. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So is it easy? No and yes. Right? Matthew 7, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Is it hard? I don't think that really tells us it's hard. We know what he's offering, and we know who the gate is. We know. Is it easy? It's easy in a sense, because here's how Jesus puts it. Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All we have to do is die to self, deny self, follow Christ, repent, and believe. And I'll, I'll close with this. John Stott, in the last book that he wrote, was called The Radical Disciple. And he closed with, with this. It was right at the end of the book. He, he cites John 13, 13, where Jesus says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. But then Stott adds this. Basic to all discipleship is our resolve not only to address Jesus with polite titles, but to follow his teaching and obey his commands. If we're going to declare him Lord, he has to be Lord. So I would say, we look at this and we see him tell us to deny self, take up our cross, and follow him. So we should be always praying for boldness and that we can trust God with the consequences of discipleship, that he is in control and he's sovereign. We should pray for the continued work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we make Jesus Lord of everything. 
And I would encourage everybody, hold nothing back for that, that quippy little saying, if he's not Lord of all, all, he's not Lord at all. And, and it's, as cute as that saying is, it's very true. If you don't make him Lord of all, he's really not Lord at all. You are. You're deciding what you're going to give up. And that's not what we're called to do. No cross, no crown. That, that was this, this other saying that, that went around. And I would argue in a way that that should be as relevant to us as it was to the Romans. No cross, no crown. We give it all to Jesus. We follow him. For the Christian, follow the leader means following Jesus. And it represents the hope of heaven because he went there ahead of us. But self-denial and the cross come first. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious and merciful Lord, we are so grateful for your plan of redemption and salvation that has been revealed to us, to children, that you've enabled us to understand, that you give us the time and the opportunity through your grace and patience to wrestle with the text as we struggle to apply it in our lives. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, for his person and his work on our behalf, and we thank you for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin, to encourage us, to illuminate your word, and to help us in our journey of progressive sanctification to be more like your son. Father, we pray that we would have the boldness to follow you, to abide in you, to live by your word. And Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself through us as we go out through the rest of the week. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.